We are in uh, Luke chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 3. And see, last week we were learning about John the Baptist and his, his ministry of calling people, specifically the Jewish people, to true and to genuine repentance in their life as a way of preparing uh, the, the way of Christ. This week, uh, we're going to read our, our passage in these two sections. And we're looking at two things here. And in the first one, uh, we're going to see John compare himself to Jesus. And, and then in the second section, we're going to see the three persons of the Holy Trinity all appear at one time uh, as the public ministry of Jesus is, is officially beginning. Uh, and so I asked as I, I read Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, where we're at today, just follow along with me in your own Bibles. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, please enlighten our minds to understand and to learn from this passage today. That we might become more Christ-centered like John the Baptist. And to become more in love with you, our triune God. It's in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So here's the, the thing about John the Baptist. Last week we talked a little bit about he's a strange guy, he's wearing camel's hip fur, he's eating uh, locusts dipped in honey, strange person, and so you might think he's this outcast weirdo that no one pays any attention to, and that nothing could be further from the truth, because uh, John the Baptist was incredibly famous, a, a huge celebrity, people of all sorts, of, of Jews, were leaving big cities and traveling great distances so they could hear John the Baptist preach. So they could be in his presence. That's the kind of uh, impact he's having there. Um, and, and, and so one of the things about John the Baptist is he didn't seem to care what anyone thought. Whether, whether the, you know, the, the high-ranking official of Herod or, or anyone else for that matter. And the people absolutely loved him for that. And, and so then we see in our passage at the very start here that, that they think that John, this, this celebrity, this you know, huge figure in, in, the, in Israel at this time that he might be the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for God to send all these years. And, and before we're too tough on these people, uh, to be fair, John the Baptist is probably the best candidate they've ever seen for this great hope. And, and, and so then either, either someone either speaks out loud, right? Something like, John, are you the Messiah? Or something of that nature. Or somehow God reveals it to him that this is what they think. Uh, because they, he knows that they think he's the Messiah. And, and what do you think John's going to do in response to this? And, and I mean this, right? Because it, it, most of us would have been tempted to just, to just bask in the attention of the masses for a little while. Maybe I, I, I'm not going to say I'm the Messiah, but hey, 
I'm enjoying this. Maybe we'll just let this go a little longer. And, and if John was tempted to take the glory, he never acts on it, not for a single moment. John outright rejects their praise, and he points to Jesus. Jesus isn't over there. I'm not pointing there. Uh, but he points to Jesus. And it's, it's a pretty good summary, you know, when we look at John's life, a pretty good summary of the Christian life here, this, this calling that we have to, to make more of Jesus and to make less of ourselves. I mean, look at the, the passage here. Look, look how John, or listen how John puts it as he responds, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so there, there, there's two major themes in this statement that he's just made. The, the first one is this. Jesus, the Christ, is more worthy than John the Baptist. That's the first major theme of that statement. Jesus is more worthy than John the Baptist. And then the second is this, that the baptism that Jesus administers is far superior to the baptism that John administers. So let's, let's look at each of those. First, first in regards to, uh, to John, right? John's famous, he's adored by the Jews, and, and yet here he is saying that he is absolutely unworthy to untie the strap of the Messiah's strandle, or sandal. And, and that might sound weird to us, we don't think much about that. But in their culture, it actually means something very specific. Because you, you, you see, in that day, instead of having classrooms that you would go to, instead of uh, getting accepted to K-State and, and that being your, your education, students would have one teacher, and they would follow this teacher wherever he went. And, and the student did not pay t- tuition. Does that sound pretty good so far? Uh, instead of tuition, they, they would do all sorts of service for their teacher. They'd become a, a servant for them. I mean, students, can, can you imagine that in, in exchange for your education that you started to babysit your, ch- your professor's children? That, that you, you picked up their white chocolate mocha every morning and brought it into their office, or you, or you mowed their lawns, or you're out raking their leaves. Uh, service is a, a, of that sense. Some of you are professors. Can, can you imagine having your students do all these personal things for you? You kind of like that, don't you? <laughs> um... That's how it really was in this first century Israel, except there was one act of service that, that was considered even too lowly for, for your, your uh, I was going to say servant, but actually your student, uh, to do for his teacher. One, one rabbi around the time actually explained it like this. He says, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal." Because remember, feet were really gross, even grosser than they are in our time. They lived in a world where people would walk on the same path with animals, big animals, and big animals have big poop, right? And so you can imagine the stuff they're going through. They're not wearing socks, they're not wearing tennies, just these open sandals that are gonna get covered with just about everything else that ends up in that street. And so students were exempt from this uh, because it was such a degrading task that you couldn't ask your, your student to do that. And, and so John is saying here that, he, that he's not worthy even to do this incredibly humiliating task. Not even that one, right? Of removing someone's nasty sandals. And, and we might say it something like, uh, I'm not even worthy to clean his toilet or her toilet, Right? Something along that nature. I don't even know if we have anything comparable to what we're talking about here. 
But, but John's point is there is, is uh, you know, I'm not even unworthy of that. And so John doesn't just say, nope, I'm not the Messiah. He goes further. And he, and he shows the people uh, the huge distinction between himself and between Jesus. Huge distinction we're talking about here uh, the, uh, between Jesus and John. And the application, I, I believe, for us is that we too must resist being praised by others. Always pointing them back to Christ our Savior. In 2 Corinthians 4-5, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to these new believers in Corinth. And, and in that letter, one of the things he says is this. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Your ministry, and I'm talking to all of you, not just vocational ministry, your ministry, your life is, is not about you and your glory. It's about Jesus and his glory. I, I mentioned the, the shorter version of a, a quote from John last week, but uh, later on, in our, you know, um, last week, but later on in our story uh, from today, before John is arrested, but after he baptizes Jesus and Jesus' public ministry begins, there are some people that are going to come to John and they're going to ask him, John, are you, are you jealous? Are you upset that all these people are now turning to Jesus and, and they're not paying attention to you like they were before? And, and that's where that quote comes from, from John 3.30, where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And he continues on after that to say, He who comes from above, speaking of Jesus... He is above all. And so John makes clear that he is nothing and Jesus is everything. And, and let me point out, this isn't just lip service, right? These aren't just words that are said, you know, John trying to make himself sound humble. The, the whole of John the Baptist's life is, is marked by this clear understanding of his position uh, of being the created in contrast to the position of God being his creator. Um, ladies, the, the book club book for this November, it's a book called Humble Roots. And Laura began reading so many quotes to me that I finally was like, give me the book, I'm going to read it. And it has been absolutely fantastic. Um, it is a Amazing book. If you've not read it, you don't have it, I highly encourage you to grab it and read it. Uh, it's great. In it, in it, the author, Hannah Anderson, she says this. She says, Humility is not simply a disposition or set of phrases. We tend to think of it that way, though. She goes on. Humility is accurately understanding ourselves and our place in the world. In short, she's saying that when we're consumed with God's glory, we forget to worry about our own glory. And that is a wonderful place to be. So then coming back to our, our text then, in, in verse 16, uh, John the Baptist here is, is saying that, that the baptism that Jesus administers again is far superior to the one that John administers. And, and we see that really in the substance of the two baptisms because John is baptizing with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what he's explaining here is, is quite simple, really. John, John can only call people to repentance, right? 
and then baptize them with water, which, which cleansed them externally, which symbolically is, is cleansing them. But, but, but John cannot really change them at their very core. That is beyond his ability. He, he could not give them true repentance. He could not actually forgive their sins. He could not bring about regeneration in anyone, anywhere, ever. See, the, the way that we minister to others, and again, not talking vocational, but all of us, the way that we minister to others has the same limitations as John's ministry. We can teach people that they are sinful. We can call people to repentance. We can tell them about Jesus and about grace and about the gospel. We can even baptize with water. However, we cannot convict someone's heart. We cannot convince someone to understand, uh, to believe that they are indeed a sinner. We, we can't make them trust in Jesus. We can't make anyone believe the gospel. That's part of our limitation. We, we, we can't bring about regeneration in anyone or, or, or forgiveness. We can't bring about faith. We can't fill anyone with the Holy Spirit. You see, only someone as powerful as God can bring about change like that. True change. And that's the point that John's getting at here. Well, well, John is not someone like God, someone like that. Jesus is someone like that. Jesus is someone like that because Jesus is God. He, he says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, and it's not just some Christians that receive the Holy Spirit. Um, it's all Christians who receive baptism by the Holy Spirit. And, and what does the baptism with the Holy Spirit do? The, the Spirit that we receive uh, regenerates us, giving us new life. The Spirit adopts us as children of God. The Spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy, sets us apart. The Spirit seals us so that we will not fall away from the faith. The Spirit equips us for, the, for ministry. When God brings someone to faith in the Son, the, the Holy Spirit that, uh, from then on dwells within them, within you, if that's true. And John tells us that this, this, this strange-sounding little addition at the end, right? He says, uh, and Jesus baptizes with fire. Does that little phrase just sound strange to you? I, I kind of wonder what, what people at the, at the time were thinking. When you hear something, you're like, did I hear that right? There was a, a time when we were uh, riding in our car in Berkeley. It was little bitty, our daughter, in the back seat. And my mother-in-law was with us. And um, she said, uh, good, uh, Berkeley, good job. And what Berkeley heard was something different. And she looks to Laura kind of up forward. And, uh, and she goes, uh, Mimi say I a good dog. Completely confused at this. She, she didn't understand it. I wonder, we hear this word fire and you just think, what, what in the world is he talking about? And, and to be honest, there is a little uncertainty about what this means. Not complete uncertainty, but specifically, this, this could be a reference to the Holy Spirit since at Pentecost, when the, when the Spirit first dwells on the people of God uh, permanently. It's, it's recorded in Acts uh, 2-3, and it's described like this. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. But it could also be describing the way that the Holy Spirit refines us, like, like fire is used to refine gold and to refine silver as it burns out all sorts of impurities. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit will purify God's people. 
And, and that actually fits perfectly with the prophecy in, in Malachi 3.1. We, we saw when we were going through that book, as it, it tells us about John the Baptist, the one who's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And, and then the very next verse after that, um, it says that God is, uh, God's coming is like a refiner's fire. I really, really think John means it in both aspects. They, they work together incredibly well. It's this picture of the Holy Spirit, yes, but it's also a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, I do want to point out here as a quick side note about uh, uh, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is one of the reasons that we don't believe that baptism must be by immersion. See, in our, our passage, we see John make this direct comparison between baptism of water on the one hand and baptism of the Holy Spirit on the other, side, other hand. And, and there's very few, you know, uh, uh, the few visual descriptions, rather, that we see in Scripture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit are clearly not by immersion, but by the Spirit either descending in some cases or the Spirit being poured out in other cases. See, we'll, we'll see the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove as we look at the rest of our passage today. And when God promised His Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the book of Joel through the prophet there, uh, Joel 2.28, which Peter quotes at Pentecost, uh, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now that's not to say that, that, that uh, a baptism by immersion is invalid. It's absolutely valid. But to simply say that it's not the only valid mode that we see in the Scriptures. Um, that's a side note. So now... Off the rabbit trail, coming back, back to verse 17 here, um, of the passage before us, then John is, uh, again tells us of this, this coming judgment of God. We, we get that in John's ministry often. Uh, God is described like a farmer who, after harvest, gathers uh, together the, the wheat and the chaff, chaff rather. Um, chaff is just a word for things that aren't wheat, uh, little bits of plant and whatnot. Farmer's laughing at me, so I must be pronouncing that word wrong. Uh, <laughs> And so to separate the two, a, a farmer would, would take this mixture and they toss it in the air in the wind. So it would work well in Kansas. Uh, and the idea was the heavier wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff, 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 and the chaff would blow away. Chaff is something different. Yeah, you want that to disappear too. <clears throat> uh, and the ch chaff... <laughs> The chaff would blow away. And, and so what the farmer would do with these two things, now that they're separate, is he'd take the good wheat and put it into the barn where it was safe. Uh, and, and then he would rake up or somehow gather together the chaff. And I need to get out of this section. Uh, and, and pile it in this big pile. And then they'd, they'd burn it up. And it's this terribly terrifying image. See, the, the use here of that term, the unquenchable fire, makes it clear that he is referring to the, the wrath of God in a very explicit image. The, the idea here is, is what's often referred to as the visible church on the one hand and the invisible church on the other hand. Um, the visible church, as we speak of that term, means anyone, anywhere who professes to have faith in Jesus. And this category of visible church, I mean, think outside of just this congregation right here, but uh, those who... Uh, those whose faith you believe to be genuine, you see it by the fruit of their, their lives. And so you might look and say, well, well certainly they are. Uh, that's the visible church. But it also would include those that, uh, that you look at and you have no idea if their faith is genuine. In fact, you might be convinced it absolutely is not genuine. You might be willing to go 100% in that it's not. Uh, you know, someone like uh, Westboro Baptist. 
Someone like uh, the BTK killer out of Wichita, who, who was actually the president of his Lutheran church while he was committing those crimes. I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying those are included in the visible church simply by the fact that they profess to be Christians. And, and those are extreme examples, but, but in other words, true believers and false Christians are currently a mixed group when you look throughout the world. Uh, you may have your suspicions, but we, we can't truly separate the two. They're all part of what is called the visible church. And so, uh, or as the way J.C. Ryle says it, he says, Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. This is what he, really important here. He says, it passes the power of man to separate them. We do in some degree, right? There's church membership. Uh, there are ways that we actually interact with people in that way and think through it, but we can't do it with absolute certainty the way God does it. And, and this mixture is going to continue until Jesus returns. But Jesus knows absolutely those who are his. And, and John the Baptist here is, is showing this great concern then that, that, that people understand that the gospel is much deeper than just a mere profession. It's, it's about truly possessing the gift of faith. And understand this. I, I think believers, sometimes we hear this and we start to doubt our own salvation. That's not the intent here. This is not so that genuine Christians uh, doubt their salvation. But it's for us to be honest with ourselves. So that, that those of us that, that may not have genuine faith, that we will go to God and we will actually find rest for our souls that we desperately need. And let me remind you then that this is not about how much faith you have. I'm not saying to evaluate yourself in some sense of perfection. It's a question, do you, do you have faith? Is, is the faith that you have, whether strong or weak, whether little or much, is that faith real? Are you really trusting in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? Verse 18 tells us here uh, that this is all part of the good news John is preaching to the people. It's good news because these people are alive and they can still turn to Jesus if they haven't. Even if you hear all this condemnation, the judgment, right? Even, even that is good news because of Christ. And, and then we learn that John gets locked up for calling Herod out for a sinful relationship with Herodias. Uh, I've already told you in the end he ends up getting killed. A, a woman dances well and she's rewarded with anything she wants and she desires John the Baptist's head on his platter and it was actually delivered. What a terrible, terrible uh, story, if you can picture it at all. But, but that's what happens. He is murdered by Herod in the end. And, and it's a good reminder. It's recorded in, in all the Gospels. And it's a good reminder to us, that, that to God's people, that uh, we often face great rejection. We often face suffering at the hand of others in other ways. And, and pain in the service of God in this life. Often. It's a reminder that the, the reward that we seek is not in this life. The reward that we seek is in eternity. It's God himself. Don't, don't expect that ministry, and again, whether vocational, or if we're talking about your coworker or your neighbors, or your roommate, don't expect that it's going to be easy and painless. A lot of the things you think you're doing to encourage and build people up, to point them to Jesus, is going to be devastating when you see the results. John didn't live for the love of the Israelites, even though he had it. 
And he was not crushed by the rejection, the hatred of Herod, even though he had that too. See, speaking truth may be very painful. And that's, that's why when we're in the service of the Lord, we must fix our eyes not upon the rewards today, not upon the praise of other people, but upon Jesus alone who is worthy and cares for us. So we're going to move sections here, right? We've just looked at John and his unworthiness and the worthiness of Christ. We're going to look at the Trinity here now. This, these last two glorious verses, as you've got them, follow along. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22 here. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, now again, the baptism of Jesus is not equated with the Christian baptism because Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't risen again. It hasn't been instituted in that, in that sense yet. But, but baptism is the symbol that Jesus ordains to be the sign of the covenant for his people. Uh, a sacrament, a means of grace for his people. And so there is a lot that we can learn even in the baptism here. Now, if you're like me, you read this, and the first question that comes to mind is this, this really odd one of why in the world is, John, or is Jesus being baptized at all? I mean, think about it. John is baptizing people as a sign of, of their repentance from their sin. Jesus isn't a sinner. So he doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to be forgiven. He doesn't need to be baptized. So, so here's the deal, though. Luke, Luke gives us this very short summary here. He just kind of goes through it real quick. Um, but, but I want us to read from Matthew 3. And you don't need to turn if you just want to listen. Just a couple verses there, verses 13 through 15. Because Matthew gives a little more detail of what goes on. You, you get to see what happened before John actually agrees to baptism. It reads, it says this, And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's a river, uh, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And then Jesus was baptized. You're right in your first thought. Jesus did not need to be baptized. Not for his own sin, but he chooses to be baptized because he's identifying with sinners. He's identifying with us. He's identifying with the people that he's come into the world to, to save. You see, already we, we talk about Jesus taking our place, right? Already Jesus is taking our place here. Here we, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12, which says that, that he'll be numbered with the transgressors. That he would bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors meaning sinners. And, and so then the passage comes to this, this crowning point in verse 22 as the entire Trinity is present for the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Now, Trinity is not a word in the Bible. You won't find it. Word searches, if you read every word in the Bible, you'll never find the word Trinity. But you will see the concept is incredibly present throughout the Scriptures. 
What, what we mean by Trinity is, is that God is one, a monotheism, and yet God is three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is one of God's incomprehensible mysteries. We see, in, we see it in Matthew 28, 19, real clearly, uh, the Great Commission, right? Jesus is, is speaking to his followers, and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In our passage, we see all three co- cooperating in this, this glorious moment as we see that, that God the Father is speaking, and, and, and God the Son is praying and being baptized, and, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and rests upon Him. You know, I think as Christians, we, we tend to forget everyone but Jesus sometimes. We tend to only think of, of Jesus... Uh, concern for our salvation, as if the others were somehow just watching it, uh, passively involved maybe. But, but here we see all three are equally concerned about the redemption of our souls. And then we learn that the heavens are opened up. That's a picture that's hard to imagine exactly what it might be. Uh, possibly the clouds parting, possibly the light. I, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but the heavens do indeed open up. And, and the Holy Spirit circles downward, fluttering in the form of a dove, a, a sign of peace and innocence. And, and the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus where he will stay for the remainder of Christ's public earthly ministry. That's... That, that's the image on the pulpit here. At least it was last time I looked. I hope it's still there. Uh, there's a word inside of there. It's Hebrew, shalom, meaning peace. It's the idea here. See, the, the other people present here were able to see this with their own eyes and, and with their own ears. They're able to hear then the, the voice of God. And I can't even imagine what that might have sounded like. But they hear the, the voice of God. And someday, you know, all of God's children will, will hear it ourselves. But the father speaks, and and this is what he says. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In that small little sentence, the father uses two words as as he describes the relationship with Jesus. Two specific words. The the first word is beloved. It's from the Greek agapitos. You might recognize from agape, right? The the highest of the loves. Uh, uh, A word of deep affection. And it has its roots in Psalm 2-7, which informs us that that Jesus is is, is the the kingly royal son with sovereign strength. And the father deeply, dearly loves the son. And he says so. He says so. He's not adopting Jesus as this, at this moment, okay? Some people misunderstood this to think that Jesus was just a man until this moment. Uh, he's not being adopted here. He's declaring what has always been true since the beginning of time of Jesus. What, what, I, what a love that we see here within the Trinity, right? It's this literally a perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, uh, the other word then that the Father uses here to describe this re- relationship with the Son is, is one of approval. He says, with you I am well pleased. Aren't those sweet words? With you I am well pleased. I think... Many of us want to hear that from our own fathers. With you, I am well pleased. And it raises the question, what exactly is the father pleased about the son? Certainly he's pleased with Jesus' humble incarnation. 
We're talking the highest of all royalty, the, you know, divinity. God, you know, Jesus is God. And here in his humble incarnation, he's born into a a poor family. He spent 30 years at this point in perfect holiness. His, His faithful prayer and communion with the Father over all these years, those are things he's pleased with. He's also pleased with all that Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross later. The resurrection will prove that God was and is always pleased with the Son. Now, if we're honest, don't you want to hear something similar from God to you? I mean, I long to hear those words, Brian, with you're my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Do you want to hear that from God? Except the big problem with that is I'm, I'm sinful. Not just in, on paper, in reality, I, I'm sinful. I, I haven't lived my life in perfect holiness. I haven't lived with, with faithful prayer and communion with God. See, we're all sinful. We're all not worthy uh, for this to be said about us in the way that Jesus is worthy of this. And you see... That's the gospel right there. That, that's the good news, isn't it? That you can't be worthy like Jesus, but Jesus can be worthy for you. That's the good news. And so when our faith is in Jesus and, and all that he's done for us, we have, we have such union with Christ that, that when the Father looks to each of us, he sees the worthiness of Jesus. His righteousness becomes uh, our righteousness. That's the good news. And so when God looks at you, he sees you, but not your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he sees that you are indeed his child. And he is well pleased. That, that's the point of John's warning at the, you know, that, that's the point of Jesus' incarnation. That's, that's the work of the entire Trinity for you. The, the good news of the gospel is, is that if we have faith in Jesus, if he gives us that, then we are beloved children of God. If your faith is in Jesus, rest in that. Rest in that. And if your faith is not in Jesus, and you're here this morning, it may be time to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the scriptures which tell us the story of redemption, which you have accomplished Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you for the incarnation, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for everything you have done for us, but thank you mostly for who you are. Thank you for being glorious and opening our eyes to see that. God, you are the greatest of all beings. You are a wonderful and a merciful Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Son. Amen.